Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. The movie Scrooged is actually based on the Christmas classic Charles Dickens wrote over 150 years ago um, called The Christmas Carol. And it's, uh, it's one of those stories that has been told and retold and made and remade and adapted and readapted. Uh, there's a Muppet version of it. There's, you know, it. It's been done over and over and over again. It's one of those stories that just resonates. And it's one of those classics that has been around for, for, for hundreds of years. And in this particular version, instead of uh, a miserly banker named Ebenezer Scrooge, the main character is a self-centered TV executive named appropriately, Frank Cross. And uh, in both of these, the main character is just so self-absorbed and, and so, um, so full of, of what they're doing that they give very little thought to, to anyone else or anything else besides themselves and their money and their own personal success. And what happens, if you're not familiar with the story at all, is um, that they're visited by three spirits, spirit of Christmas past, present, and future. And each of these come with a warning that if you don't change... If something doesn't happen, if you don't change your ways, you are destined to a dark and lonely future of deep regret, eternal regret. And so um, even though it was written 150 years ago or more, um, it still resonates today because it's a story about redemption. And that's why Dickens wrote the story. It was in the Industrial Revolution and people were losing jobs because machines were taking over. And it it was not just about personal redemption, it was about the part that every human being is to play in this. That, that it's not just about ourselves, it's about what we use to help other people and how we use our resources to help others. And that's really why, why he wrote the story. And that's why it continues to the same. Because there's something inside all of us that that story of redemption resonates. Because it's a story that's your story and mine. John Eldridge writes about this. He says, we humans share these lingering questions. Who am I really? Why am I here? Where do I find life? What does God want of me? And the answers to these questions come only when we know the rest of the story. There is a larger story. There is a story that we just can't seem to escape. It is a story that is written on the human heart. It is the story of God. And all of Scripture really is the unfolding of God's story, God's plan of redemption for human history. And and when you read through Scripture, that's what it is. And it's one person's story and another person's story because each each person along the way played a different part. And so do we. And so do we. All Scripture is about God's redeeming work. It is the story of what He is doing in this world. And every individual has a part in that. One of the key participants is one that I don't think in Protestant circles we give much attention to. Um, it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, and, you know, yeah, we know, you know, at Christmas time, and that's about all we think of her. But I want you to think about her life this morning. In fact, I want to take a little bit closer look at who she was and what she went through because I think there are some characteristics in this young woman that could teach all of us about finding our part in God's story in this world. We first meet her in Luke chapter 1. You want to follow along, beginning in verse 26. We're told that God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. In that little conversation are some real strong characteristics and qualities, and they're the things I think that God looks for in each and every one of us. Because God has always chosen to do His work in human history through humans. God Himself became a human being in Jesus Christ. And God has a part for you in this story. And I believe that. I believe that for every one of us. And He is looking for some things in us to, to accomplish the work that He wants to do in us and through us. And that's what I want to look at this morning as we kind of take a look. Because even though this great story of God is not about you, it does include you. And there's some real real important qualities and characteristics that God can use. The first is just plain willingness, that God looks for people who are open to his call. People who are just willing to ask God, what do you want to do with me? By all appearances, Mary is not a very remarkable human being. There's nothing very special about her that you could look at on the outside. She's an ordinary person. She lives in a very obscure village um, in a far, far corner of the Roman Empire. It's one of those places. Nazareth was a town of about 500 people, maybe 1,000 at the most in the first century. It's a small town. And it actually was situated in, in, a, in a valley basin. And it was so secluded that you could really, you could be riding, going by on any of the roads to, throughout the Roman Empire and go right by the place and never see it. Because it was just kind of off in the corner down in a valley. And in this obscure little place, in an easily overlooked city, there's this woman named Mary. Nazareth. It's an uncultured place, by the way. Most of the people of the time, even in, even in the surrounding areas, always looked down on the Nazarenes because they were considered to be a little unrefined, uncultured. And they actually spoke a dialect that they was considered crude. And in fact, you might even remember when uh, Nathaniel was being called to be a disciple of Jesus and his brother comes to him and says, we found the Messiah. He's you know, from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Okay, that's the general feeling around there. This is not a well-thought-of place, and yet God sees in this place this woman named Mary. She's probably anywhere from 13 to 16 years old, because that's marrying age back then. So she's really a young girl, a young teen. And actually, the name Mary is very, very common. If you read through the Gospels, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, there's Mary Magdalene, there's Mary, the, you know, there's Mary's all over the place, okay? And in fact, anybody want to guess how many, what percentage of the um, female population were named Mary back in that time? Anybody want to guess? What's that? 50. Pretty close. Estimates by scholars are that half the women in Israel at that time were named Mary. You ever Googled your name? Have you ever done that? You know, it's, it's kind of a popular thing. Well, this week I Googled Ken Jensen. 
460,000 entries. There are 460,000 mentions online somewhere in the world of Ken Jensen. One of them is an architect. They fulfilled the dream that I never fulfilled. (laughs) If you were to Google Mary's name, if you could at that time, there would be so many entries, you would never find this lady, okay? Everybody was named Mary just about. She's just an unremarkable, there's nothing special about her, nothing that you would look at and say, oh, that's why God chose her. And yet God sees in her something that nobody else seems to see, except maybe Joseph. Because God sends an angel, and the angel comes to her and says, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And then a little bit later on, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. God sees in you something nobody else sees. God sees in you what you don't even see. And she's not used to this. <laughs> she's not used to being singled out. She's kind of, you know, in the background's kind of person. And so she says, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She's confused. She doesn't understand it. The message paraphrase puts it this way. She was thoroughly shaken. She had no idea what's going on here. I mean, she knew this was an angel, but that was about it. The thing is, though, we shouldn't be surprised because all the way through Scripture, God uses ordinary people. That's what He does. Each of us, I believe each and every one of us are called. It says in 2 Chronicles 69, the Lord searches all the earth for people who have given themselves completely to Him. That's what God's looking for. People will just say, Lord, I'm yours. Whatever you can do with my life, do it. However I can be a part of bringing your kingdom, I want to be a part. God's looking for those kind of people who are just open to the possibility. Now, in the tradition that I grew up in, okay, um, there was something about if you were going to be a pastor or a missionary, you had to receive what was the call, okay? And nobody really knew what the call was, you know, but if you're called to the ministry, you have a calling, okay? You're, if you're a missionary, you have been called. And, and I remember, uh, you know, Years ago, trying to think, well, how do I know if I'm called? In fact, I remember very, very clearly because I was in school at the time, and there was a Christmas party, and it was at the, the home of my um, New Testament Greek professor, and he had some of his students over for this Christmas party, and we're sitting around at the party, and after we've eaten and everything, we're talking about this. So I said, so what is it? How do you know if you're called? What is a calling? What is the call of the Lord on your life to ministry? And he remembered these words. He said to me, I don't know what it will be for you, but if you have it, You'll know. (laughs) So here I am, 20-something years later, still trying to figure it out, you know? And I have people ask me that. How do you know if you're called? You know what I believe? I believe each and every one of us are called. That God has a calling on each of our lives. Each of us are uniquely gifted. We are uniquely called. In whatever situation, whatever circumstance you are in in your life, you are called by God to be there. I believe that. I strongly, strongly believe that. And whatever stage of life you're at, you are called. And whatever your calling might have been when you were younger, now maybe you're getting into middle age and you're wondering, is that calling still there? It has probably grown and expanded. Because what I believe is that we are not spectators to God's work in this world. We are participants. We're not here to watch it happen. We're to get involved. And I believe the job of of anyone who is going to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ is to try and figure out what God is doing in this world and what He has called you to do to be a part of it. How has God gifted me so that I can get in on what He's doing in this world? And you don't have to be a scholar. You look at the 12 that Jesus called, 
Not one of them was a scholar. Not one of them was a teacher. Not one of them was a rabbi. Not one of them was a priest. These weren't qualified guys. They were fishermen and tax collectors, people that nobody else cared about. But see, I think that Jesus calls each and every one of us to his work. He had one mission in this world, to bring the kingdom of God, the the message of redemption and forgiveness and life change. And he does it through his people. And in the same way he did it 2,000 years ago with a young peasant girl, he wants to do it through you. And I think on a daily basis, Jesus calls us to follow him. And yet so often we miss those opportunities. We miss those calling moments. And it's not out of rebellion, I don't think. I think it's just plain neglect. We are too consumed with our own self-being. We are too consumed with our own um, well-being and and, and the stuff that we want to do. And because of that, we miss what God wants to do. In the movie version, Scrooge, after one of the ghosts has visited uh, Frank Cross, he realizes that, that he's missing something. And, and he goes, um, they take him back to his past, the ghost of Christmas past, and he sees what he once had. And he realizes that where he got to today was because of choices that he made along the way. And he didn't think about it at the time, but, but now he's a different person. And it's because of the choices he made, and mostly because he wasn't paying attention. And he lost things along the way. One of the things he lost was his first love. And... And after he has his visit by the, the, uh, the ghost of Christmas past, he decides he wants to reconnect with her. She's, she's the one person that he remembers to be so steady and so caring and so loving. And in fact, she is now working in a, in a homeless shelter in a soup kitchen. And, and he goes to find her out because he wants to recapture what he has lost. The change is beginning to happen. And I want you to watch the scene. Watch what happens. What Claire. are you doing here? Claire. Well, you said if it happened again, then I should come by. Well, what what happened? Well, I have been thinking a lot about the past. And you know, when that happens, you start thinking to yourself, well, I've made a lot of decisions, you know. And what would have happened if I had made different decisions? You know what I mean? Are you talking about regret? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I'm talking about regret. Yeah. You, You know, the one good thing about regret is that it's never too late. You can always change if you want to. I deal with that every day. Okay, we'll deal with this. I want to take you someplace right now and eat Chinese food. Claire, Claire, we got some huge problem this time. There ain't a fuse in the whole joint. Oh, no, there are fuses. I'll show you where they are in just a second, Hazel. The oh. A&P couldn't send any turkeys. No. Oh, no. They were supposed to be here hours ago. Now, what? If you just just wait one minute, I just got to make the phone call. No, just, don't bother. Couple... Don't bother, okay? If, we, if you just wait one minute, let me just finish organizing what I'm doing. I'll come with you, Frank. Take the rest of your life. I'm going to give you some advice, Claire. Scrape them off. You want to save somebody? Save yourself. Oh, well, that's a wonderful attitude to have on Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. He realizes he needs to change, but he wants it to be on his terms. It's got to be my way. And God is looking for people who are willing to set aside their own agendas and their own timing and their own hopes and dreams to pursue life as a response to his call. 
And I think it starts with just being open to the idea that maybe God has something for me to do. And there's another aspect. It's the quality of faith that God looks for people who will trust without having all the answers. There's a lot that Mary does not understand when the angel visits. And even though we have the benefit of history and we look back and we see, there is still, even to this day, we look back at that and it just seems, the story seems so fantastic. It's hardly believable for us. Imagine what it was for Mary. She's told, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That God is about to take a risk in human history that he has never done before. That he is entrusting the hope of humanity to the hands of a peasant couple. Every parent in this room can probably remember a moment when you realized the responsibilities of parenting. You know? I, I remember it. I remember Because, you know, it's just kind of like, well, you know, you grow up, you get married, you have kids. You know, that's just what you do. But then when you have the kids and you realize, I'm responsible for this life. <laughs> what if I screw up? What if I mess up? What if... And I wonder if Mary didn't feel that way. God is putting in your hands the hope of all humanity. And I'm sure she's got all kinds of questions. She does. She asks, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Now, she is not asking about the birds and the bees, okay? She understands how babies are made, okay? That is not, that's not the kind of question. What she is talking about is that there is a whole process in first century Jewish tradition for marriage. And it starts with a matchmaker um, who puts two young people together. And, and they become formally engaged. But that's about it to that point. Then a little bit later, there, come, there comes the betrothal, okay? We find out in, in Matthew's gospel that Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal is a very serious thing, and it was very specific. It was a one-year period, and in that one-year period, there were things to be done. One of the things was um, that the young man was to be able to come up with a dowry because he had to be able to present to the father proof that he could support his daughter that was now going to become his wife. And so he had things that he had to do. And, and Mary had things that she had to do. And it was a whole process. But the deal was, once you were betrothed, you were considered married, legally married, in every way except sexual relations. That doesn't sound too fun, does it? But that's how it worked back then. So Mary is at a point in her life where she is betrothed, but, but the marriage has not yet been consummated because it hasn't, the, the year hasn't ended up. So she's still a virgin. You say, well, how does this fit? Because... Because I'm betrothed, and, but, you know, it's going to be a while, and, you know, how... It, and that's the question that she's asking. How does this grand announcement you're making fit in my life? It doesn't fit. The timing's off. Something's wrong here. It doesn't make sense. What's interesting is that she's not reprimanded or condemned for asking questions. I think God can handle our questions. Her question is... How does this work? How will this be? And they're told, God's going to do something. This is going to be a collaborative work between the power of God and human response. That God is doing something that he has never done before. And the spirit of God and the power of God is going to come and work in you. Now, why would she even consider that? 
Why would she even consider this proposition and consider even saying yes? I think it's because she knew God. I think she was a devout young woman. And we get a hint of that a little bit later because in the, uh, towards the end of chapter 1, she goes and visits her relative um, Elizabeth. And while she is there, she breaks out into this song. It's called the Magnificat, if you've probably heard this before. Just a portion of it is written there uh, in your outline. Let me read it to you, an expanded version. Mary breaks into the song and says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thought. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham, and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary knows her people's history. She knows of God's intervention. She knows of God's work in human history. She knows the story. She knows the story of a woman named Rahab, who was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, whose life was spared. She knows the story of Ruth, whose husband had died and was then taken as a wife by her, her, uh, her husband's uncle. She knows the redemptive story of Esther. She knows that God works in this world, that God has been using people all along, and He has used women, and He has used men, and now He's using me. And I think that's the reflection in that song. She knows God. She understands who He is, and she might not have all the answers, and she might have a whole lot of questions left over, but she knows enough about God to know these things. He is powerful, he is holy, but he is also merciful and mindful of the lowest. And in this baby that's going to be born, in Jesus, all of those qualities of God are shown perfectly. He is powerful, he is holy, he is also merciful and caring. What prepared her for such faith? get a little more of a hint in chapter 2. We're told about Mary that she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of pondering, you know, sitting off in a corner thinking about things for a little while, but it's really a very technical term. Scott McKnight writes about it in his book, The Real Mary, Um, but he talks about this is a term that has to do with trying to figure out what God is doing in this world so as to become a part of it. The word in the Old Testament is used most often for discernment or understanding or pondering, and it's used most often in the prophets, where the prophets would try to hear, God, what are you doing in this world? What is the word for your people? It's used very often in the book of Job, where they're trying to figure out, God, what are you doing here? And that's what it means to ponder. That's what Mary does. She knows the God of history. She knows the God that she worships, and she's thinking about, okay, so how do I fit in this plan? of redemption. How does this work in me? And I think God's looking for those kind of people. You don't have to have all the answers to have faith. You don't have to have it all figured out, but be willing to trust. And just being willing to trust, God can begin to use you. And I think there's a third element. 
And it has to do with determination and commitment. That God, I think, looks for people who will follow whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. They choose to follow, regardless of her questions. Listen to her response. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That might be the most powerful prayer in all of Scripture. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Because with those words, all of her hopes, all of her dreams, all of her plans for the future, all of those things that she thought about her life was going to be like have changed. In those two sentences, her whole life changes. And there's some very, very serious repercussions. Again, let me read this time from the book, The Real Mary. Scott McKnight writes about it. gives a lot of good historical background. He says, what was it like for Mary to have said, may it be in that sort of world? Here are the sorts of things that would have torn through Mary's mind the minute Gabriel explained to her this good news. Instantaneously, because she grew up in a Torah world, Mary's mind would have connected her pregnancy with being a sotah, a suspected adulteress, and to the public humiliation of a trial and, how, and to how Joseph, her Torah-observant husband, would respond. She had little idea how Joseph might respond to the claims of this virginal conception. What were the chances that her Torah-observant husband would back down from insisting that legal procedures be followed? Slim. She knew that the villagers would taunt and ostracize her son. He'd hear the accusations that he was an illegitimate child, in Hebrew, a mamzer, and that he would be prohibited from special assembly. She knew as well that Joseph's reputation as an observant Jew would be called into question. She knew that he was legally required to divorce her. And one more mental connection for Mary was that she would leave, she could leave, he could leave her stranded with the Messiah-to-be without a father. She knew that they were poor and that any legal settlement that came to her after the divorce would make life financially difficult. No sane, intelligent, pious, young Jewish woman, and Mary was all these things and more, could avoid thinking all these things about herself, about Jesus, and about Joseph. She must have wondered if there was an easier way. Mary would never have a normal life again. Mary's family, Mary's friends, and Mary's Nazareth would never look at her the same again. And if later evidence is any indication, very few would believe her story. Mary began to suffer for the Messiah before the Messiah suffered for her. Those are the immediate repercussions. Those are the kinds of things she would face right away. But there's more because the repercussions continue for the rest of her life. Because I had made a realization not too long ago, a couple of years ago, I came to the realization, I will always be dad. I will always, my kids are grown, they are married, they're on their own, I am still dad. I still think about them, I still worry about them sometimes, I still care about them. When our kids were living at home, particularly my daughter, you know, I'd be downstairs, she'd be upstairs, and she'd say, hey dad, and I knew what was coming. It was either could you or I need, one of those two things, you know. <laughs> hey dad, oh, I know it's even to this day, every once in a while I get that phone call. Hey, Dad, <laughs> and I know what's coming. Because that's the way it is. And that, I just realized that a couple of years ago. I will never stop being Dad. And my wife will never stop being Mom. Because that's the way it is when you're parents. And that's the way it was for Mary. She would always be Jesus' mom. Have you ever thought of what that looked like? 
Have you ever wondered what that was like in the growing up years? How do you explain to your child where he came from? How much does he understand already? How much does he know? What is my part in this? What influence, what impact am I supposed to have in this whole process? And I think she had a tremendous impact. Grew up with suspected origins. His mother did not have a very good reputation from then on. And you notice in Jesus' ministry, who does he go to? He reaches out to those who don't have good reputations. Tax collectors, a woman caught in adultery, another woman at a well. In fact, he takes time for women in a culture that didn't really do that so much. But I think it's how Mary helped shape his life. He reaches out to the lowly. He reaches out to the overlooked, the marginalized of society. That's where he brings the kingdom message. Doesn't bring it to the big temple, to all the priests. They don't want to hear it. The rabbis, the Pharisees, they don't want to hear it. But he has this mission of bringing the kingdom. And I believe, I believe that Mary was the perfect choice to be his mother. Those are the things that he saw, that God saw in her. And I think it's all because of this. She lived her faith. Her faith was not something that was just an every Sabbath kind of deal. It was a life. When she said those words, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said, I think that became the foundational prayer of the rest of her life. I can imagine her every morning getting up saying, Lord, today I am your servant. May it be to me as you say. Because we see that. A little bit later, as Jesus begins his ministry, in fact, the very first miracle that he performs is at a wedding. And at the wedding, they have run out of wine, which is a terrible social, it's a terrible thing to do in that culture and that society. And so Mary, and it's probably, Mary's probably a relative, most scholars think, because that's how she kind of got involved in this whole thing. So she comes to Jesus and she says to him, they've run out of wine. And he looks at her and says, why are you telling me? What is that to me? What do you ask? but she doesn't give up. And she goes to the servants because she knows who this son is. And she goes to the servants and listen to the words that she says to the servants. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Somewhere in that transition to adulthood, she began to see this is the one that's 30 years before She had prayed that prayer to. And you see it throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. When he teaches his disciples to pray, among other things, he teaches them to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think he learned that prayer at his mother's knees. And and I don't know, you know, and, and, you know, I'm in good company because scholars have deliberated and debated for centuries how this whole God-man incarnation thing worked out and how much was he God and how much was he man. But I think, I think in all of that, it was all God's hand. And whether God used Mary to shape this young life as he grew or he saw in Mary those characteristics that his son would already have and she would reinforce, I don't know. But I do know that that, I think, became the prayer of her life. And it's very, very interesting 
that in the very last night of his life, when Jesus is faced with the thing that he has come to this earth to do, but it is a very, very difficult thing to give his life up, his prayer, his last prayer on this last night says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. It is an echo of the prayer of his mother 30-something years earlier. And I think it's the prayer that God looks for each, from each and every one of us. Lord, I'm your servant. May it be to me, as you would say. Now that is a bold and scary and dangerous and daring prayer. Because when you pray that, it can't be just words. It's an attitude of surrender and humility. But through it, through that prayer, God changed the world, and he has been doing that for the last 2,000 years. From anybody who will say that prayer, Lord, I am your servant. May it be to me as you say, not my will, yours be done. Dry your heads with me. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.